Welcome to Anxiety and the Artist, the podcast that explores artist's relationship with anxiety, offering insight and inspiration. I'm your host, Allison Schaff. My guest today is Simon Ward. Simon is an actor, psychologist, and educator currently based in Sydney, Australia. He trained as a performer at the Royal Academy of Music in London, Trinity College London, and Actors Centre Australia. He has performed in London's West End, New York City, and throughout Australia. Simon has also earned four psychology degrees from Macquarie University in Sydney and has worked as a clinical psychologist in the NSW Government Health Department and as a consultant psychologist for the Australian Ballet and in private practice. Simon also teaches acting voice and mental health for performers to college students, runs workshops on anxiety and the voice, psychology and performing, and professional development. Simon, welcome to the show. Hello, Alison. It's wonderful to be on your wonderful show. Thank you. Okay, I have to ask, four degrees in psychology? Yeah, I, I, kept, I kept staying. The first one was the one I did straight out of school. Um, uh, which was uh, a Bachelor of Arts degree. And then I did a Master of Social Health in Psychology. And then I did a postgraduate uh, degree in Psychology. And then I did a Master's in Counselling Psychology. Do you ever sleep? (laughs) Look, I had a nap when I was in kindergarten one afternoon. I thought that'll do me for the next 30 years. So... (laughs) So you have a very interesting dual career as both a performer and a psychologist. Um, and most of the people I've spoken to, you know, they used to be performers and then they sort of transitioned into a second career as a therapist. But you have managed to, to do both for the past, you know, 20 some years. Um, so tell me a little bit about your background and your unique experience as both a performer and a psychologist. When I was about seven or eight, I wanted to be an actor or a Muppet, and I was very disappointed when I discovered that I wasn't made of felt. So I thought, an actor it is. So, And I got through school and I did shows through school and choir and music and orchestras and all that kind of stuff. Um, And I got to the end of school and I thought, well, I want to do something with people, not really sure. So I applied for all sorts of different courses and I got into psychology. So I thought, okay, I'll do that and I'll do shows at the same time. So I kept doing that. My twin brother, I have a twin brother who's five minutes older than me, but I'm taller. So, aha. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. That's important. Uh, very important. He, went off. he is also a wonderful musician. He plays the, the pipe organ and um, the piano and composes and all sorts of stuff. But I started psychology and was doing musicals. And um, then I kept going with psychology and I kept doing shows. And then I did a couple of short courses on the way through. And then I graduated and I started working full time in um, in a a clinic attached to a hospital for Mm -hmm. kids and teenagers. Um, And then a psychology clinic and then went into doing more cabaret shows. And that was getting busier and busier. So I thought, well, I'll leave there. I'll do half time psychology and the rest will be performing in theatre. I'd done a six-month acting course at that stage and was doing some more writing courses and I thought, okay, it's about – and then um, my mum died when I was uh, in about – when I was just just after I left 
just before I left the health department. And I thought, okay, I haven't done a show in the West End. I need to go and do a show. So I got a loan and I booked a theatre in London and I went and I did a cabaret show. And it went okay. It went quite well. People liked it. They stayed to the end. Always a bonus. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Always. And while I was there, I did a course at RADA and the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, their mm-hmm. summer school, and I auditioned for the Royal Academy of Music graduates course, which is uh, now a master's an MA in musical theatre. And that was a very terrifying audition, but great. And then I got into that. I came back to Australia. I got married. And then a month later, we went over to London. Wow. Okay. (laughs) And you've somehow just managed to like make all of that work and continue to, but it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got this interesting perspective in that you're still very active in both worlds. Um, And so you have this passion, I would, I guess I would call it for where the arts and and mental health intersect. Um, So tell me a little bit about what you're currently working on um, with educators and how the arts are taught. The main thing really is that people don't get told how their brains work. Okay. Or we get a little bit of information. We get, you know, I've got more instructions for my IKEA bookshelves than I ever got <laughs> uh, from about about my brain, which is mm-hmm. could be why my brain collapses with as much frequency as my IKEA bookshelves do. But <laughs> the, essentially, it's how brains work, how anxiety affects the body um, and the voice, particularly for performers, and then therefore how mental health works and therefore how effective education works and therefore how safe performing works and then how industry could work by integrating psychology and well-being into daily practice, into courses, into subjects, into rehearsal spaces, into creative discussions so that it's, it just so it filters in everywhere not to take over but as a part of it because we're dealing with people and this is a part of being people right we seem to have this unresourceful belief in theater and in a lot of other arts practices that this is the way it's always been done so this is the (laughs) way we should do it tell me your thoughts on that and what steps should be taken to redefine roles in theater oh well um (laughs) thoughts on that it's ridiculous (laughs) really it is yeah yeah (laughs) 24 karat gold bonkers. It's also the argument for everything from, oh, you know, the Romans deciding not to put wider wheels on their chariots to not wanting seatbelts in, seat in cars to, um, you know, it, it's just, it's a nonsense argument. But it's said from a place of, oh, we're, little, we're a bit unsure about where this is going to go and we'll stick with what we know. And that's creative. You put your finger right on it there because it totally stops innovation. Mm-hmm. Like all the major theatrical, artistic, mechanical, electrical, computational, fashion, food developments in mm-hmm. the world all start from a position of, oh, that's the way it's always done. I'm going to do, do something different. So the Kellogg brothers decided to squish corn and toast it. And came up with, you know, cornflakes and all the rest of it. You know, and they, someone decided at, to put peanut butter inside chocolate and make a Reese's. And, you know, at some point before that, everyone said, oh, no, that's ridiculous. That'll never work. 
Um, the biggest problem, though, for the arts industry is that the that mindset maintains damage. Mm-hmm. And if you get wounded by auditions or training that's based around that, and it's really common, I was told um, by various teachers in various institutions around the world, look, this is just the way the industry is, toughen up. Mm-hmm. You just got <laughs> and I think everyone's got a story, something about that. Oh yes. Which, yeah. And and I kept thinking, but but I don't understand why. If nobody likes it, why are we all saying this is a good idea? If right. everyone goes to the same, you know, pizza restaurant and the pizzas are always terrible and occasionally you get a, a roach or you know, a fingernail or something in the pizza. You don't go back. You don't just stay there and go, well, it's always been like this. Right. I'm going to keep, <laughs> I'm going to get a margarita on this table, please, but hold the socks. And <laughs> so it's ridiculous. Anyway, it's ridiculous and nonsensical and needs to change and, um, and it needs to change quickly and rapidly and everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, <laughs> what steps should be taken to redefine roles, I think was the last bit of your question. Yes. Um, which is wonderful. I, um, I have two ways of doing, well, two ideas about this. One is that every production company, every theatre, every show, every arts institution should have a psychologist or a counsellor or a mental health professional on call, on their call sheet. They've got a physio, they've got a first aid person, and why don't they have a someone to look after your mental well-being as well? It's right. really bizarre that every other industry has this now, except for, in a systematic way, except for the arts. Right. And I, and I have yet to hear a sensible reason apart from, oh, we're scared it'll cost us money or we're worried about you know, who's going to be held responsible if someone has a panic attack because they were working in the rehearsal and, or whatever. But those are issues that have been already worked out by lots of other industries. So, mm-hmm. so the second thing is to reintroduce the concept of repertory theatre companies. So the repertory theatre, for listeners who may not be uh, familiar with that concept, has been around as long as theatre has been around, where it's basically a troop of players who... Uh, travel together or stick together and perform a range of plays, initially plays, um, over like a year, maybe a year, two years, and they all play lots of different roles, everything from they paint the scenery, they sweep the stage, they might play the leading role one month, they do 10 shows a year and a Christmas show, a couple of musicals, some new work, some classics, some contemporary And the theatre company, the repertory theatre company, based a lot around the uh, British model as well, has, you know, 30 or so people in it. And it is made up of a huge range of everybody, all shapes, all sizes, all ages, all identities, all ethnicities, um, so that you can do the widest range of shows. Mm -hmm. So... uh, and they work incredibly well. Audiences love it because if I go and see Hamlet in January and Alison is playing Hamlet and doing fabulously well and 
I'm sweeping up. Then mm-hmm. the next month we're we're doing a production of the Music Man, and I'm playing the, one of the seventy fourth trombone, and very well, mind you, but I'm playing it. And so then, and then the month after that, we do something different, and everybody learns a, the craft from. Mm-hmm. And everyone learns lots of different roles. So the whole idea that you've only ever done acting, you've only ever been a performer, as mm-hmm. opposed to, well, I did a, I've done an ASM role, I did a stage manager, I was a supporter, I did um, a leading part, then I, was a, then I did lighting technicians, and then I was a, a, a props person. Um, and because you have lots of voices and lots of experiences and lots of diversity built into the system it just becomes a natural part of it like walking down the street in any major city in the world mm-hmm. is everyone goes no one everyone, it just kind of happens so that's what i would love i think that's a, a really really good model i'd love to see um training institutions do that as well as um established theater companies or that are already to set up a repertory theater wing of theirs and it'd be mm-hmm. great to have the government put in some money so 80 percent right. of every imagine single that. theater company imagine that <laughs> government funding the arts oh, oh. <laughs> next you're going to want want us to have health care <laughs> look universal health care is also on that list so you know i'm thinking big right i'm thinking big <laughs> absolutely you know look. i would like to see uh, personally i would like to see um educators educating themselves on how to be better instructors. Um, yeah. You know, just because you're an amazing dancer doesn't mean that you can teach. Oh, um, absolutely. Yes. Hallelujah. I'm into that. Yes. And I think, and you know, I, I don't fault people for going into teaching. Um, it's just, I think that we're passing down a lot of the behaviors that were taught to us. And we mm-hmm. were told that that was okay. And, you know, this is, I'm, I'm helping you because this is how I'm, you know, this is how I was taught. And so I'm going to now teach you the same way. And I think that we're doing a huge disservice to the next generation of performers by not taking the time to educate ourselves on how to teach and how to make, you know, how to create a healthy performer. And, and as you called it earlier, safe, safe performance, safe theater, I think you said safe performance. Mm. Um, I think, you know, there's a, I'm not talking about coddling people, (laughs) but I'm, I am talking about, you know, educating people and taking a healthy approach to, to teaching and to educating the next generation of performers. That's just my two cents. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Because otherwise people just taught as they were taught, whether or not they liked it or not. I mean, Mm -hmm. you ask, if you start a conversation with any just about particularly dance any person that has been to a dance school um and within about three minutes you go so what what was the teaching like someone will come up with a story of being shamed or shouted at or belittled or something like that and and you're quite right a lot of the time you know really good performers go well i want to pass on this information but they just assume that it, it can happen it's actually well no, why should you assume that that's that's something that can just happen? We can learn things. We know how um, minds work. We know how what is helpful in education. We know what is helpful for building up students' well-being and their sense of taking risks, being able to 
um, make mistakes. I have a thing in my singing lessons that you're, it is compulsory to make three mistakes per class, and if you haven't made one by the end, we'll just all have to stay until you make another until one. Until you make one. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, you learn more from your mistakes than you of do course. from your success. And Absolutely. if you don't set up a, an environment where there's freedom to fail, then mm-hmm. you're not learning. Really. No. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And it's it's such a vital thing to give educators skills and give educators knowledge about it in the same way that it is to give the students skills and knowledge. Coming up, Simon shares some mini mindfulness tips and insight for performing arts educators and students. So given that you have this, all of this knowledge as a psychologist and as a performer, how are you educating your students when it comes to informing them about how their brains and mental health work and how it applies to the work they do as performers? When it comes to uh, my students, uh, every single one gets my how the brain works spiel. (laughs) And um, whether that's individually or in a class, I try and if it's um, when I go into training schools, I try and get the staff in as well so that everyone's on the same page and mm-hmm. so that suddenly mental health isn't either something you should be scared of, but it also um, it's not something that you should ignore either. And I think you sort of, there is a bit of a, a myth that says that, well, if you do talk about mental health, then you're just wrapping people up in cotton wool and you're just um, uh, protecting them too much and it's not the reality and it's a hard world out there and what's your backup plan because you wanted to go into the arts and you should have all that that narrative. So I tell the, the students how their brains work, I tell them how their threat response system works and I give them a framework for learning which involves the word yet quite a lot. Okay. So, I don't know how to do a double pirouette yet. yet. I don't know how to cook a cheese souffle yet. I don't know which one of the 47 varieties of M&M at the M&M store in New York I'm going to buy yet. Anything that we haven't done, we need to add the word yet on the end because the education system for the arts currently, you get one go and then that's it. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, auditions perpetuate that and that's not so helpful because nobody it it fosters an idea that says well if I didn't get it right there's something wrong with me as opposed Mm to I just don't know how to do that yet my turn and it also puts a tremendous amount of pressure Mm -hmm. on the situation and and causes a lot of anxiety as a result (laughs) I mean I would say that that anxiety is a very healthy response in that context yeah yeah that's that's a realistic response to uh-huh. to being told, you know, everything in your life has led up to this moment and if you don't, you know, do perfect in this moment, you're you're you might as well just quit and give up and go become mm-hmm. a plumber. I don't know. Yes. Yeah, well exactly. And so and also the idea that you're not bad just because you feel bad. Mhm. And mm-hmm. um and that you can change your body in 6 seconds. You can change your your heart rate in six seconds. You can calm your body down so that your mind will follow. And the idea that your your thoughts and your feelings occupy physical space in your body and that you don't have to be scared about it, but you don't need to do two hours of um, 
guided meditation in order to center yourself okay. either. So there's practical things as well um, as um, uh, sort of frame, um, worldview frameworks for, okay, how can we view ourselves? How can I cultivate a friendly internal voice? And how can, particularly for people in auditions, going into them and also on panels, the audition thing needs so much renovation. Okay. How so? I guess because it's the only, when you describe auditioning to anyone who hasn't ever worked in the arts industry, their response usually is along the lines of, <laughs> what? Because <laughs> it doesn't make sense. If you had right. to say, oh, I've got this job and I went to three job interviews yesterday morning and I don't know if I've got any, got any of them and they may not tell me and I've got another two tomorrow and I don't know if I'll get them and they probably won't give me any feedback either and um, it's my one chance to get it and I really want it and I've worked really, really hard and I may never know why I don't get it. Like that that's a bizarre, mysterious, weird thing that does not exist in any other industry mm-hmm. and there is absolutely no reason why it should still exist in that current form in the arts industry either mm-hmm. um and the the model of auditioning is again one of those things that says well you get one go at it and we will never quite know what they're looking for and we will never quite know and we'll never quite tell you and it's all a big bit mysterious but it's really stressful at the same time everyone has to pretend that they're not stressed or anxious at all we just have to be really perky and friendly and ready for everything and and totally prepared and also that if we don't get it well there's shame in that and then you don't know when the next one, next one is coming up and you may not have rent that week you might not get paid or you you might not have a job for another six months or a year or two. So it's this, it's totally bizarre and weird that it continues to operate like that. Mm-hmm. And particularly the pressure in auditions, the expectation mm-hmm. that the panel can ask you to do anything. And there've been, you know, the Me Too movement was all about this as well, about the power imbalance. And mm-hmm. when people say, oh, look, yeah, just do that scene again. But look, um, look, just take your top off for that. <laughs> right? <laughs> In the context, because it's been set up for they have so much power, I am, my whole career, my life, my value as a human being, my work, my training is all based upon do they like me and my work? I And and in that moment, I mean, thankfully, because of all the work of the Me Too movement and various other organisations and movements, that's shifting, but it's still there. It still goes oh, yeah. on. Absolutely. Like, yeah. So, and I still have yet to find anyone who can give me a justification for why it continues to go on in the way it does, apart from, oh, gosh, we've always done it this but way. We've, we've always done it, it this way. We have. <laughs> we have always done it that way. I've always sung a quarter tone flat in the Christmas carols just well, <laughs> That was my training when I was in the school choir because the conductor could never quite work out who it was. And if you look really sincere, everybody knows it's you. (laughs) 
Um, so you mentioned that there are, uh, uh, you know, some simple things you can do to sort of um, rewire your brain and your body in like 30 seconds. Yeah. What are some of those things? Okay. Um, so mini mindfulness, I guess, is what they come under the heading of. So things mm -hmm. like if you raise your eyebrows about half an inch and you keep them up, and I'm doing this now as, as I speak to you, dear listeners, raise your awesome. eyebrows up about half an inch and keep them up and then breathe in and out twice through your mouth. And on the second out breath, let your eyebrows flop down and get heavy. And you should feel a bit of a, a wave of heaviness kind of wash down over your face. I did. Uh-huh. So you've just lowered your heart rate. You've just lowered wow. your blood pressure a little bit. You've just re-engaged your um, uh, social engagement system through your vagus nerve. And it took you about nine seconds. Right. And if you do that on stage, no one can see you doing it. Right. Or they so, think you're just really surprised. Well, there, there's that as well. <laughs> Anything, any other uh, oh, elections? So things like got? getting your elbows above your earlobes at least once every half an hour. Really? So what does that yeah. do? Elbows well, if you, I'm doing this right now and I'm like, what <laughs> am I doing? So if you put your hands, <laughs> hands behind your head, uh -huh. like you're like, kind of about to lean back, what you'll okay. notice is straight away that your, your breath might stop. So let's okay. start the breath again. And you might find the top of your tummy gets a little tight. So if you breathe in and out through your mouth, that'll loosen a bit. And also you will stretch between your ribs. So your intercostal muscles will stretch. And then if you stretch your arms up to the ceiling and then out to the sides and then down and then spread some peanut butter with your shoulders. So roll them around a little bit. Okay. What you've just done is um, you have real done a bit of realignment and also you've lowered um, some of the resting adrenaline in your system. One of the things that happens when we're static or when we're still or when we're tense, we tend to lock mm -hmm. and we get uh, an excess of adrenaline in our muscles. So stretching out, particularly between the ribs, is really helpful because, one, it means you can breathe more freely. Two, most of the stuff that we feel, we feel, feel things in our body between our nose and our knees, really, but most of anxiety hangs out between your stomach and your upper chest. Mm -hmm. And so when your ribs, the muscles around your ribs are tight and you're already feeling like I can't breathe very much, that one will just stretch them without saying, I have to stretch my ribs. I have to stretch my muscles out. They'll right. just do it because your elbows are above your earlobes. It also means you get a little bit more oxygen in your body. You might feel that you yawn when you do it, which means you get even more oxygen in your body, which means you're more likely to pay attention, which means that um, your um, parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems can uh, cross-regulate and... Yeah, lots of great stuff happens just for putting your elbows above your earlobes. That's amazing. You currently work at a liberal arts college, correct? Correct. Okay. And what, so we're, you know, dealing with COVID, who mm -hmm. isn't? And yeah. um, post, you know, reopening, not necessarily post-COVID, but definitely like starting to reopen. Um, and obviously that's affecting the arts tremendously. What is, um, what's your take on how that's affecting education? I think the biggest thing is that um, education went into a bit of a freefall um, and 
everyone is starting up courses again like we just went on an extended sort of holiday break, a Mm -hmm. bit of a vacation, and now we're back and we're just going to pick up where we left off, except the people aren't the same and the industry isn't the same. And going back into education, um, I think now is a wonderful opportunity to integrate well-being into courses and rehearsal practices and um, lessons and um, subjects. So I'm teaching a unit called Wellbeing for Actors um, mm-hmm. at the Arts College I'm at because my worry is that the industry will um, sort of come back on and the audiences that are desperate to go and see things. I mean, the, 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 the pickup of tickets is just phenomenal for mm-hmm. shows that are opening. It's amazing. And so the audiences are there. They're desperate to see, you know, live, live, live performances. Mm-hmm. But the education world is still wounded from having to deal with COVID and suddenly go online and not. And anyone that has tried to do or lead a dance class with everyone <laughs> in their lounge room or their bedroom or their hallway or the kitchen or on their kitchen table will know <laughs> <laughs> that... Um, essentially there's you people kept developing some skills but there's so much catch-up that's going to have to happen so my I guess my concern is that we don't take the opportunity to go okay we're all a bit wounded we're all a bit exhausted and tired some things worked really well and in COVID some things definitely didn't what do we want to keep what do we want less of what do we want more of so that the education thing can take off at a really helpful pace and a really helpful direction. Wonderful. Uh, from your mouth to God's ears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or from, from your mouth to the dean's ears. Um, <laughs> Simon, thank you so much for being here today. You are a joy and a delight, and your enthusiasm and your energy is just infectious and contagious, and I hope everybody listening feels the same thing that I do just from talking to you. But thank you so much for being here. Alison Chef, it has been a thrill, a joy, and an honor. Thank you for having me. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks to my guest, Simon Ward. For more information on some of the topics we discussed, and to learn more about Simon and his work, head on over to our website, anxietyandtheartist.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and share. Tell a friend, get the word out. We'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or a comment in whatever podcast app you're listening to us on. Until next time, be healthy and stay creative. Anxiety and the Artist is produced by Grost Productions and recorded at Homestead Studios. Music and engineering is by Bosco Chef. This podcast represents the opinions of Allison Chef and her guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.